In chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's going to be showing on the ungodly and the godly. We're going to be seeing the fast and rapid spiral of sin. Um, it is an absolute toilet. And the moment that sin enters in the world, the big flush happens the moment they eat in the garden. And ever since then, we've just been spiraling, right? It, it, it's a terrible mess. It sounds like a terrible illustration, but it's the truth. We are spiraling and things are not getting better, nor are they going to in the world. You say, wow, what an encouraging, positive message. Thank you. I needed that tonight. It is positive and encouraging. You know why? Because God said it was going to happen. So that means his word is true. It means as well this, the fact that it's not going to get better means that one day it's not going to get better in this world. But one day Christ is going to return and make things all right. He's going to right the wrongs that have been done. And we are, as has been sung and said, we're on the winning side, not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So if we're trusting in him, though this world might get worse and it will get worse, nevertheless, each and every day that the world grows worse and worse, we realize more and more how we are just pilgrims passing through this world, how we, like Abraham, are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're not looking for anything in this world to satisfy us because nothing in this world can satisfy us, but we're looking for the return of Christ. And it's imminent. The Lord could come back, and even so, come Lord Jesus. May we long and live for that day to meet our Savior face to face. Now tonight, we want to begin by looking, I want to read verses 9-15, through 15, and we're going to see the confrontation. Uh, just to, to help you out here, speed you up. In the beginning, God. God creates. Everything's perfect. Man has one rule that he's, not to, uh, that he's supposed to follow. Man doesn't follow that rule, looks down, he's naked, tries to cover himself up. That doesn't work, tries to hide it behind a tree. That doesn't work. God comes and gives man an opportunity to repent and gives man an opportunity to confess his sin. What does he do? He goes hiding and blaming his wife that he gave me, right? I was fine until she, right? The whole thing. And then ultimately judgment comes, but when judgment comes, so does mercy. God then sheds blood. It was not man that first shed blood. As we see with Cain and Abel, many people think the first blood that is shed in the Bible is Cain and Abel. No, no. It is the Lord Himself who sheds blood to satisfy His own wrath. What a thought this is to, to give us a picture of the satisfactory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to save sinners that are undeserving and unworthy. That's the whole message of, of uh, Genesis. It's the whole message of the Gospel. It's the whole uh, divine revelation of God displaying and dispensing His grace and His glory so that we might know Him. Now, in this, they get sent mercifully out of the garden and they start popping out babies, right? That's what God had told them to do. They pop out babies and here's what happens. They say, oh, this must be the Messiah. And instead of the Messiah, old Cain turns into a murderer. He kills his own brother. Verse number 8, it tells us, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. That is no accident. It is absolutely 100% premeditated murder. And the idea of slaying is that of a slaughter. It was not that he walked up behind his brother and accidentally clunked him on the head or dropped a rock on his head. This was a slaughter of his own brother. And now here we get to the aftermath. Let's read verses 9 through 15 tonight. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, 
My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out of this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Let's stop there here. Confronting Cain. First of all, we're going to look at the first section dealing with the divine judgment. By the way, when we talk about judgment, we say, people say only God can judge, right? That's a popular phrase these days with young people. Only God can judge me. Uh, I, I don't fear man because only God can. Well, yeah, that's true, but that should give you all the more reason to fear because God will judge. God will not judge like man. God will judge righteously, purely, perfectly, and He will do so according to His law, according to His own character, and we don't measure up. Not a single one of us could ever come close. So therefore, it should bring about the fear of the Lord. That's the purpose of it. Because we realize the moment we just take a a glimpse at who God is, I'm not Him, and nor am I like Him. Therefore, something's not right. Now, now in this, we see this divine judgment coming because only God can truly judge divinely and perfectly. And here we see that this is not the first time that God has done so. But where we find God's judgment, we also find God's mercy. We'll see that here. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? If you and I were the Lord here, and I don't like to play those games much because we're not God, nor can we be, nor do we understand the mind of God. But if we were God in our human nature, in our human flesh, if somebody killed your brother, what would you do? Right? There's going to be a hole dug somewhere in Carroll County and no one's going to know nothing, right? Now, now, we say that, we think, but you think, we want to naturally do what in our flesh? We want to naturally take vengeance, don't we? The vengeance belongeth to the Lord. And here, the moment that mankind sins, what do we think would just be the absolute just thing that God could do? God could, and even unjustly, strike him down immediately dead. He could have done it with Adam and Eve, did he? No. Why? Because where we find the justice of God, what do we also find? The mercy of God. Once more, with sin, with the first two sins that we find mentioned in the Scripture, and both of which come down to the simplicity of someone who is prideful, someone who knows God's Word, knows God's command, and says, I know better than God. Right? This goes back to much like the very fall of Satan. We're no different than the way in which he fell. Satan says, I will be like the Most High. I will be like the Most High God. I will ascend. I'll be like Him. What does our sin do? It says, I can be my own God. That's the very root of sin itself. That is the very root of pride. It is the very root of every sin that we find. It is that I am my own God and I only answer to myself. Now, here in this, the Lord comes and He starts asking questions because what we find is that as He comes to bring judgment, once more, mercy is mixed into judgment. Even the harshest of judgments from God is coded in His mercy. Do you realize this? And it's been said and it's often viewed as just a cliché. Heaven is far too good for us, and, and even, you've heard this, maybe, hell is too good for us. Anyone ever heard that one before? I've heard some preachers say that before. The, the idea is this, it's that even the worst of punishment, we deserve, Adam and Eve deserved far worse than what they got, didn't they? They sinned, and if we don't understand that, we don't understand sin, nor do we understand who God is. I believe the greatest of issues within our churches today, within our own homes, within our own hearts, is the fact that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. Right? We, we think we know God because we have been in church our whole lives and we can, 
recite things about God, some of the knowable things, yet without actually knowing the depth and the height and the width of really who God is. If we understand even just a fraction of what holiness and the holiness of God means, then every single sin that we understand and we commit in our life should disgust us as much as it does the Lord. But the issue is that we don't. Now, now with this, we should see and we can never lift up high enough God's character, God's person, but nor can we ever put low enough the wickedness and vileness of sin. Right? This is a brand new shirt. Right? It looks good. I know. Thank you for telling me. You know what I'm not going to do with this shirt? I'm not going to go out and, run and, and roll around in a mud puddle. You know why? It's a new shirt. Right? It's nice. Right? It, now, in a few years, it'll be stained, it'll be worn out and all that stuff. You know why? Because right now, at least, it's new. It's the first time wearing it. I appreciate its newness, its purity, if you will. And it's not even a white shirt. Now, here's the thing. If we understand what holiness really means, if we understand who God truly is, the very slightest of sins against Him it is this dark stain that, that cannot be hid. It is this absolute offense against Him. God could have it justly ended the human race in the garden, and He doesn't. Why? To dispense His grace, display His glory. Ultimately, His grace and His glory are going to be found in who? The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to here once more, should he, could he have killed Cain? Absolutely. It would have been just to do so. He could have struck him down, lightning bolt dead. But mercy comes in. God comes asking questions. Much like he had done before in Genesis 3, 9-11. through Not out of ignorance, but out of loving kindness. The idea of being patient, slow to anger. In order to give Cain the same opportunity to receive mercy through repentance and faith. Genesis 3, verse 9 through 11. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Did God not know where Adam was? Of course he did. He saw his nakedness. He saw him hiding behind a tree. He saw him hiding even more so behind some fig leaves that he fashioned into an apron. And yet he continues to ask questions Where art thou? And he says then unto him in verse 11, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Did God not know that the fruit was missing? Of course God knew. Why does God ask the question? Much like this. When the young child gets caught with chocolate all over their face from the fresh baked cookies in the cookie jar, and there's also a cookie jar that's broken on the counter, and the parent goes, did you, did you eat those cookies? Mm-mm. Right? There's crumbs, and there's chocolate, and there's a broken jar, and there's even a cookie in each hand. Mm-mm. Now, we laugh, but half of us were those kids, weren't we, right? But why does the parent continue to ask? Dad already knows you ate the cookie, right? Mom's asking, because why is my jar broken? Dad's asking, well, you're going to give me one of those cookies? right? But the Lord asks questions not because he's ignorant. The Lord doesn't ask questions because he's trying to figure this whole thing out and see how he can maybe, you know, fix it up. And rather, he's asking him to give out of the loving kindness of his fatherly heart. Remember, he formed and fashioned Adam out of the dust of which he created. He speaks the world into existence, including the dust that's on the earth, and then he scoops it up and forms and fashions and breathes that same breath of life into Adam. He cares for Adam. He cares for Cain. He cares for you and me. 
If we understand God's holiness and we understand our sin, what else should we understand? The patience and the mercy of God. How patient God has been with us. We can think, and we often talk about our own nation, how patient God has been with us, with our nation, because of all the abortions, all the atrocities, all the sin. Let's break it down even further. Let's just think about our own lives for a minute. How patient God was with us in order for us to hear the gospel, in order for us to have that day where we had that final come-to-Jesus meeting and we came to Jesus by faith, by His grace. The patience and kindness of God is always displayed Not because it's a part of who God is, it is who God is. The same way that God is not just part just, He is justice itself. And He's not just one thing at a time. He's not just good for a little while and then wrathful for a little bit. He is all of these things at one time. And you and I can't find that because when you and I are wrathful, we're wrathful. And that's all we are. When you and I are loving, we're loving. right? And sometimes not even for the right reasons. But who God is is who God is. He does not change. His compassions, they fail not. Now notice this question. It is a merciful question. The Lord God said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Some would look at that question and say, well, does he not care about Cain? No, certainly he does. He cares about every soul that he's made. Nevertheless, he comes because he knows that Abel's blood has been shed by Remember, Abel is the one who took his own hands and shed the blood of an innocent animal to offer unto God. And now instead of Cain having the opportunity that God gave to him back in verse number 6 and 7, if you think, the opportunity where Cain then could have said, okay, well, I'm going to go do the same thing because that's right, to trust the Lord to shed the sense of blood on my behalf that I deserve to die myself. Here's what happens. Cain, instead of shedding the blood of an innocent animal, animal to cover his sins sheds the blood of his faithful innocent brother and his sins are not covered or cleansed he doesn't offer up Abel by faith rather he doesn't offer anything up by faith he is faithless he is unrighteous he is self-centered self-willed much like his father before him at times now when God asked this question Guzik writes God knew the answer to this question naturally right He asked Cain because he wanted to give him the opportunity to confess his sin and start to do right after having done wrong. How futile it was for Cain to lie to God. It was madness for him to think God didn't know where Abel was or that he could actually hide his sin from God. I love the way that Guzik puts it there because it reminds us of his father and mother. Adam and Eve there in the garden. And they sin against God. They see their nakedness. Immediately it says in verse number... 7 of chapter 3. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Immediately their eyes are open, and what do they immediately do? We've got to fix this. We've got to make this right. And they do so in their own way. And then what do they do? Immediately start lying about what happened. And they, they go, well, yeah, we ate, but you know, it was the woman's fault. Well, it was the serpent's fault. It was anybody's fault but my own. This is the nature of sin itself. Sin is itself a lie against God. When we sin, what sin really is, is it saying what God has said is not right. Who God is, is not God. If we believed in the moment of... Here's the thing. The reason why we sin is because in that moment of sin, 
even us as believers, we are doubting the very word and person of God. We think that somehow we can hide behind fig leaves, as Tozer called it, fig leaf religion. We think that we can hide behind a tree. And remember, God made the trees and the fig leaves, and we think we can hide behind it. It is insane to think that we can escape the eyes of God. It is insane to think that we can hide or run from the hand of God. Yet how many of us did it for years? How much of the world does it yet even now? We are running from someone that you can never escape. We are trying to hide from someone that you can never hide from. Another commentator writes, Defiance grows with sin, and punishment keeps pace with guilt. Adam and Eve fear before God and acknowledge their sin, yet Cain boldly denies it. Cain here, his response the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Would have been pretty easy at this point to go, he's over there at that dirt pile that I just dug up, right? He might even just let his brother laying in the field after he slew him. Cain at this point, for all we know, it might still be cleaning the blood off of a blade or off of his own hands. And yet he can never get the blood off truly, can he? Here, God absolutely knows, and Cain, his response is quite telling to what sin does. And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Once more, we think about the child. A, a, a mouth with covered in crumbs, covered in chocolate. All the evidence is there. I don't know. I don't know anything. Trying to play dumb with God doesn't quite work, does it? We can play games with God, but we will never, ever, ever win. The very God of life knows every breath, every death, of all living things. Nothing escapes the eyes, knowledge, or power of God. Now, here's the issue. When you and I don't confess our sin, you know what we're doing? We're going the way of Cain. When we don't confess our sin, you know what we're doing? We're doing what Cain did. When we don't confess our sin, we're not going the way of Abel, which was the way of faith. When we are not confessing our sin to, to the Lord, what we are doing is hurting ourselves even further. Why would we run from the only one that can fix our problem? Why would we try to hide from the only one that wants to help us and can help us? But our sin, the moment we tasted it, like a poison goes through our veins, blinds our eyes, stops up our ears, and dulls our heart and our senses. And now as God calls us, and calls us and calls us, we begin to go, I don't hear him, I have to run, I have to hide, he certainly won't accept me, and I'm certainly, even we get to the point at times where we become so hard-hearted that we will not confess our sin because we are not wrong. We never want to be wrong. We call it here in the South, oh, they're just hard-headed, or they're just strong-willed. You know what the Bible calls it? Pride. And it's not good. When Moses talks about a stiff-necked generation, the idea of having a stiff neck, it's not you wake up and you got a, a crick in your neck. Okay, that's not the idea. You didn't sleep wrong. It is that you have hardened where you will not be moved. It is this idea of you are, this is, this is who I am. I'm not wrong. I'm not budging. The very smallest of our sin, 
If we were to understand this, the, the, even the, from the murderous heart of Cain to our own little white lies or gossip over in a corner of a church, it looks at God face to face and stiffens up everything. If we were to understand our sin like that and think about that, it, it would change the way we go about life a little bit. But see, we like sin far too much because this flesh loves it. This flesh lives for sin. The sin feels good and we like it and we do it because we like it. Why do we like it? Because at the very root of all flesh is a grave desire to be one's own God. Every act of immorality, inward, outward, is founded in an inward idolatry. We have to understand that. Cain's prideful rejection of the Lord's law, the Lord's love. He says, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? First of all, let me ask you guys, are you your brother's keeper? Are you your sister's keeper? You say, well, I'm responsible for me. You know, I'm nobody's other Holy Spirit. Absolutely, you're not someone else's Holy Spirit, so don't try to be. Nevertheless, are we told in the Scripture to help one another? Absolutely. To keep one another from sin? Absolutely. Instead, what we do is we'll either be a stumbling block to sin, or when someone is in sin, instead of giving them a hand and giving them some grace, we go, did you see what they did? That's not helping. We've just committed a sin in pretending that we're willing to help someone else in their sin. We are nothing more in that case so often like the Pharisee and the scribe walking by the, you know, this guy in the gutter. And we see our brother or our sister in the gutter and we go, well, at least it's not me. I'm in my own gutter, I just won't admit it. But as long as my gutter doesn't look as bad as their gutter, I must be good. Boy, how wicked we are in church and we don't even know it. What, man, I, I wish that the Lord would open up our eyes to it. I wish the Lord would open up my own eyes. When we see someone like Cain, we go, how could he do it? I know how. Because the same flesh that Cain has is the same flesh that I have. And all that keeps us from doing what Cain has done, nothing but the grace of God, nothing but the restraining power of the Spirit of God. And when we look at this, we shouldn't be going, how foolish of Cain, how wicked of Cain. We should be going, how patient of God. How merciful of God. We often view the Scripture and the, the, the accounts about people like Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, Noah and all this stuff, and, and Abraham and all these wonderful people that we see that are recorded in Scripture and we go, oh man, look at their life, look at their life. No, don't look at them, look at God. Right? I, I, we, right I, I'm in a little Bible study with a few guys and we're looking through life of Abraham, going through that right now. We're getting into Isaac and, and we, we kind of discovered this the other night that how easy it is, we look at these men, we go, oh man, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it's like, no, they were morons like you and me. But they served a good, gracious, merciful God. That's what we've got to see in the Scripture. It's not about these folks. Matter of fact, the only person that we should focus on in the Bible that was in the human flesh was God in the flesh. That's Christ. McGee writes about his rejection here. I love the way McGee puts it here. He frankly had little regard for his brother or his God. 
when you and I sin against our brothers and sisters, when we gossip, when we... And boy, the church is just as full of sin as the, as the world is. The church loves to shout down the sins of the world, but never shouts down the sins of the church. We'll shout down abortion. We'll shout down uh, LGBT. We'll shout down... We'll shout down political parties, right? And we'll think that somehow the other one must be right and godly. Hogwash. We'll never shout down about our own pride. We'll never shout down about false conversion. We'll never shout down about these things that are so rampant in our churches. We'll never shout down the hypocrisy, the Phariseeism. We won't shout that down ever because we know we're guilty. Now, even the best of us are guilty of these things. So what can we do? Well, we can't do what Cain did and try to work our way to heaven or work our way with, to, to trust the Lord or, or to, to be in right standing before God. Rather, we have to simply confess our sins before God. First John tells us in verses 8-10, through 10, we see that if we confess our sin, if, notice it's a condition, it's both a condition and an invitation to do so, you sin, and here's what happens, you sin at 8 o'clock in the morning, you woke up, you spilled your coffee. You said three, four, five-letter words that you're not supposed to say, right? And what do you do? Well, my day's shot. Get to the cross. Get to the Lord. Confess your sin and roll on. Why? Because if we confess our sin, it is, a, it is an invitation. It is an opportunity for us to go to the Lord. And what does it say? If we confess our sins, He might think about it and He might forgive us. No, it says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Not just because we go to confessing, but we're confessing who? We're confessing Christ. Lord, I'm a sinner, but Christ isn't. And I'm, thank you, Lord, that I'm in Him. Thank you, Lord, that His Spirit's within me. We, our confession should not just be this confession of trying to beat ourselves over the head and to where we're bloodied, but rather confess your sin and trust that what Jesus has said, what God has said in His Word, is sufficient and enough to cleanse us and to make us right. That's all we have to cling on anyways. How about this? James tells us in chapter 1 about this man who looks at himself in a, in a mirror and then forgets what he looked like. This is the idea of Cain here. He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Five minutes ago, he's killing his brother. Slaughtering him is the idea. Slaying him. It's a violent, visceral death that Abel faced from the hands of his own brother. And he's just, I don't know. I don't know what happened. It's the same way as James talks about. We look in the mirror and we go, Ugh, yeah, that's not right. That's not good. Uh, hold on. I've got to get something real quick. We put the mirror down and we, we forget what we look like. We forget the sin of our own heart. How We look at this and we go, how could Cain forget such? How can we forget such? You see, we forget how sinful we are, but we also forget how gracious God is. We will remember our sin and we'll beat ourselves up in that sin. We'll condemn our hearts. And all the while, the Lord's waiting to make things right. And here, just like with Cain, just like with us, He gives an opportunity for such. But not acknowledging, accepting, and admitting our sin before God truly is the most idolatrous and immoral thing that we can do. We don't think of not confessing sin as, as sin. But here's the thing. What did Adam and Eve do? The first time that God comes to them and asks questions, they go, it was her and you gave her to me. She goes, it was a snake and you made the snake. Right? 
It's always someone else's fault. We're not going to take the blame ourselves. Cain gets asked the question, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? It, is it my job? Right? I'm a farmer. It's, his, it's not my job to deal with him. He's off doing his own thing. What a sad reality. When we don't confess our sin, it's because we're not confessing the Lord. To understand that if we confess the Lord, we will confess our sin and we must. Our lives depend on it. Our growth depends upon these things. Our life is a life of repentance and faith. We think that salvation, repentance and faith, and then it's over with. No. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Why? Because when I repent of my sin, when I confess my sin to the Lord, what am I also to be doing? Lord, I'm confessing because I know that you are faithful and just to forgive. I know that the price has already been paid. I know that my sins are forgiven, but I'm confessing this to you now to be in right relationship, to be in right standing before you, so that, God, your grace might be dispensed, so that I might give you glory, so that your glory might be displayed in my life. Phillips writes, With brash insolence, Cain lied in the very face of God. That was what he thought of the holiness, righteousness, and omniscience of God. Thus it is with all false religion. It propagates in God's name a gigantic lie, for at the heart of all false religions are deception and fraud, and in God's name it propagates the most atrocious untruths. Every sin that you and I commit from the very smallest to the very biggest and whatever you want to call the small and the big, it is a lie in the face of God. If we were to think about this right before we sin, it's as if we're walking up and we look at the Lord. Now, if you and I really thought this, we, it, it would, right? If I thought this, I wish I could think this way. Right before we sin, and right before we do whatever we're about to do that we know we're not supposed to, it's as if we look at the Lord and we go, I know I'm not supposed to and I know you're God and all, but I'm going to do this anyways because in this moment, I think I'm right. We don't view sin that way. Perhaps we ought to. This isn't to beat us up, but if sin is that bad and God forgives it, then what does that tell us about God? That tells us He's a whole lot better and a whole lot greater and a whole lot more powerful, a whole lot more forgiving than what we would think. If you and I were to deal with that in our life, we, forget you, we're writing you off, we're, we're socking it to you, we're, we're going to give you a left hook, right? Not the Lord. Where His judgment is, there is His mercy. The issue here with Cain is that Cain rejects any responsibility to be his brother's keeper while also refusing to be a keeper of his own heart. The flames of sin are now a wildfire within his murderous heart. He has committed murder. He has not been a keeper of his own heart nor has he been a keeper of his brother. What are we called to do? Remember, look back. This sitting in your notes, because it's not in mine either. But here, look back this. Genesis chapter 2. What did God tell? What did God tell Adam to do? In verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, here's what's often thought. 
that must mean that Adam's got to go in there and he's got to start pruning bushes. He's got to take the weed eater there and weed eat the deed all the place and he's got to uh, mulch and all this stuff. And that, that's not the case. What does it mean to dress in the key? We talked about this. It's been a while, I know. <laughs> we ain't made it very far. If y'all would listen faster, right? <laughs> what does it mean? It was the idea of obedience, faith, and worship to dress in the key. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, if we think about this, to keep one's own heart, what does it mean? It's to keep it from sin. The idea that Adam was to dress and keep the garden, it means that he was to protect it from sin. Snake comes in, whispers lies. Get out. Drive him out. Your wife hands you a fruit that you know you ain't supposed to eat. Knock that fruit out. You're holding a fruit in your hand that you know you're not supposed to eat. Get rid of the fruit. Our flesh doesn't like to fight sin. As a matter of fact, it won't fight sin. The flesh invites sin. It don't fight sin. So to keep here this idea, he doesn't keep his own heart free from sin. And he wouldn't have been willing to keep his own brother from it. As a matter of fact, he's willing for his brother's demise. We understand this from Cain's life and from our own. Every single sin is attack. A full frontal attack against God's character and commands. Our sin is not just disobedience, as we often think and we know. And it is disobedience. It's lawlessness, right? That's what sin is at its very root. But sin itself is an affront to God's character, to who He is, and to His commands, what He has said, what He has commanded, what He requires. This also means as well that we look at this little section means that we ought to be helping our brothers. If your brother falls into sin, help. And gossip never helps. Right? To help our brothers and our sisters who are struggling. We think, we learned this long before we even have even Bible uh, memorized. Your mom sends you off to school and she tells you golden rule. Your teacher tells it to you, right? Treat us, you'd have him treat you, right? The whole, and then it comes in different ways and things. Nevertheless, the idea is this. If you would like help if you fall into sin, how many of you would like help if you fall into sin? All right, five of you, perfect. The rest of you will remember. No. If we would want help with our sin, and while we're in the midst of sin, when others who know the Lord fall into such, what should we be there to do? We should be there to help. The, the Lord is there even in the midst of this where Cain could have been slew just like his brother was for his sin that he committed. What could have happened? God could have struck him down. Instead, what does God do? He comes and he asks him questions. Why? To give him an opportunity. Do you know where your brother is? Do you know what's happened to your brother? And what should have been the response? Yes, Lord. I slew him. And my unrighteousness and my unfaithfulness and my ungodliness, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That doesn't happen here. I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now look at this at God's reply. In verse number 10, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Blood is a very important thing. It is blood that is required for the remission of sins. The Bible talks about the life being in the blood. I'll put it this way, right? And I'm no scientist, all right? I know you, 
you was wondering. But if you lose all of your blood, you know what's going to happen? You will be dead. You lose all the blood you got, it ain't moving. And we can think about a car, and I'm no mechanic neither, right? You can ask just about anybody. I'm not. I can fill it up with gas, and that's it. I did learn I can change a, uh, the blinker fluid, all right? No, no. I, right? I've done some things, right? Not, not much. But he, here's, here's what we're talking about. I'll let you figure that out. See who the other mechanics are in the, in the church tonight. Here, here's where we're at, though. You know, when we look at this, we can do all this stuff. We can go about this and we can see, but if you take a car and you take every drop of fluid that it's got, you know what it's not going to do? It's not going to move. And so when we look at this, blood is important. Critically important. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. Now we see God's reply here. First of all, as one commentator puts it, Abel was the first of the saints whose blood is precious in the sight of God. Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And by virtue of His faith, He being dead, yet speaketh through His blood, which cried unto God. Hebrews 11.4 Guzik writes, The idea of blood crying out to God from the ground is later repeated in the Bible. Numbers 35, 29-34 describes how the blood of unpunished murderers defiles the land. The blood of Abel spoke, and it spoke of judgment. The blood of Jesus also speaks, but of better things, of grace and of sin having been judged. Hebrews 12, 24. I'll read that for you. Hebrews 12, 24 tells us, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What does Abel speak of? What is the legacy of Abel? If we remember in Hebrews 11, it's that he lived and died by faith. He trusted God. He believed God's word. He trusted in God's promise and in God's provision. And he made a sacrifice. Yes, it was of blood, but even more so, it was by faith. That's the key. We find that every life and even every death gives a testimony, doesn't it? There are some who we even made mention of tonight, of a brother in Christ who passes away and is gone, yet his life still speaks, doesn't it? Praise the Lord for such, right? That's a blessing. But there are many others who have died and they speak of the opposite, don't they? Every life and every death speaks. Praise God that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ speaks of something far greater. It speaks of grace that is unending, mercy that can never reach its bottom. We find blood that is full and final and satisfactory to offer the payment for our sins. Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, what we see in that is that His blood speaks that sin itself has now been judged. That our old man has now been judged. That even the devil himself has been judged and his fate is already sealed. But so is the fate of every other who will not trust and be cleansed by this blood, and that is the blood of Christ. 
And with this, and this is how we close tonight. I'm going to let you all out about three minutes early. You're welcome. No, I don't want to start this next little section. I, every life and death is a testimony, but let me ask us tonight, and I ask this to my own self today, what does our life speak? What does our testimony speak? If we were the ones to be slain by a brother, what would our life speak? Does it speak of God's grace? Does it speak as a testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness? This is how we end tonight. Though Abel is dead, yet he still speaks through his life an example of faith. Christ died and rose again. And that empty tomb still speaks of sin that is judged, Satan that is defeated, and of saints that are now delivered through the precious blood of Christ. The promised seed of God, promised to the first sinners, and sufficient to save the very last sinner that there'll ever be. May we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. May we look at the life of Cain the death of Abel, and see that the only way to truly live is to live by faith and trust and the promise and provision of God. And may we see as well that it is a futile, a rebellious and prideful thing to not confess our sin. May the Lord give us eyes to see our sin, but even more so, may the Lord give us eyes to see Him. That's what we need more than ever. More than anything. Let us pray. Lord, we come tonight, we just thank you that we can study your word. And Lord, there's a, a great deal of things that we didn't get to tonight. Nevertheless, Lord, you gave us what we needed tonight. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God. Give us eyes that we might see you. Lord, as we see you, the, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And Lord, the, our sin won't be uh, nearly as appealing as we see how good and gracious you are. But Lord, nevertheless, and while we are still in this world, help us to fight our flesh. God, help us to live and to walk in the Spirit. Help us to live and walk by faith. And Lord, we believe that You can give us the faith that we need. You've given us all that we need in Christ. May we look to Him. May we look to Christ and live, truly live and experience a life that we have been given in Him. Lord, we thank You that we can have Your Word given to us, preserved for us, that we might study and know You, Lord, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Help us to walk rightly before You tonight to confess our sin. If, if we have sin right now, Lord, may we confess it. And may we look to Christ. May we trust in You. May we know and trust Your promise that if we confess our sins, that You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, God. We thank You for Your character. We thank You for Your nature. We thank You for Your patience and Your kindness to us. Go with us now, Lord. Use us. Prepare us to be used of You throughout this week that we would uh, be walking billboards, walking lives of, of a display of Your grace and Your glory in all things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all have a blessed night. Y'all be safe heading out, and, and uh, don't forget to sign up uh, for Friday and Saturday, all right?